This is They Create Worlds, episode 195, Finding Video Game Copyright. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. We are recording to you live in front of no audience because, well, it's after Dragon Con. That's right. So, obviously, this is the second episode to drop since Dragon Con, for those of you keeping score at home. But this is the first one we are recording post-Dragon Con, so the first one where we can actually reference it. I gotta say, it went really well. We had a packed house. We had a very responsive audience. Everyone was very engaged in our little story about the seventh guest. Obviously, we also did an episode on it, but in addition to that, there is a rather crude recording, and at some point we are going to get that up for our Patreon subscribers so they can enjoy some of the madness as well. You can see the live destruction of Poster Board right in front of you. Hopefully. The recording was at an angle, you know, because of the needs, so I'm I'm not sure, because I haven't watched it yet, I'm not sure how much of that got on camera, but yes, we did bring props Those that have listened to the Seventh Guest episode may recall that there was a little blue screen mishap. We recreated that blue screen mishap using poster board, blue of course, a Leatherman, and some blue tape. It got a good response. But that's not what people are here for today. No, it is not. They are here for other things. But first, we have to bore them a little bit longer because we do have a little more housekeeping to uh, keep track of because the day approaches, Jeffrey. Oh, right. In about a month and a half at the time of this recording. It is. It really is. This is episode 195. That's five. Five more episodes that you get to listen to before the 200. Wouldn't you know... And we didn't plan this, because do we sound like guys who have a plan? I can barely plan my breakfast, let alone (laughs) what's going on with this podcast. But it turns out that episode 200 will be the December 15th episode, and that December the 15th episode will be the third episode of our three-part look at handheld games, which is our big live stream. So we will be live streaming the 200th episode. And what day is that happening, Jeffrey? That will be October 28th, 2023. At 11 U.S. Central Time, GMT minus 6 or 7. I'm not sure which one it is anymore. I'm sure there's some website that will tell me that. 11 Central Time, 12 Eastern, 9 Pacific. If you're someplace else, you can figure it out. That's right, so... That will include the 200th episode, and as part of that live stream and 200th episode, we will be sharing some of your memories and fondnesses and recollections of the podcast. We've had a great response. We've gotten several very fine uh, testimonials from listeners to the podcast, but there are always room for a few more. So if you had a particularly favorite episode, a particularly favorite moment, if listening to the podcast has been connected to something meaningful in your life— and you would like to share that with us, uh, please feel free to drop us a line and tell us about that, and we'll uh, discuss some of that on air during our handheld live stream extravaganza. Send those on over to feedback at theycreateworlds.com. 
Absolutely. I think that's all the housekeeping. That sounds like all the housekeeping. Yeah, sure. We'll go with that's all the housekeeping, apart from, you know, the actual house and keeping it up. So let's turn to another uh, subject that is very near and dear to the hearts of anyone who is involved in a creative endeavor like this one right here. Copyrights. As I recall, we haven't had to deal with any kind of copyright issue with the podcast. No, we have not. Please don't sue us. We're poor. <laughs> That's right. Well, no, I meant, I meant that our works are copyrighted. I didn't mean that someone was going to come after us. I don't know. I don't know how lawyers work. <laughs> they uh, charge by the hour. That's how they work. In the end, they're the only ones who really win in these things. <laughs> yes, yes. Everybody loses except the lawyers. We're not here to provide that kind of commentary today, really. We are here to discuss copyright as it applies to video games and how that copyright was first established. Because as a new medium, it was not entirely clear how you would deal with copyright with video games. Obviously, video games and even computer software were not mentioned specifically in any of the myriad copyright laws around the world, most of which hadn't been updated since the 1950s. So there was a period of time where it was very uncertain what the copyright status of video games were, and as a result, made the problem of cloning, pirating, counterfeiting especially acute in the early days of the industry. Now, as I recall, we brought this up a little bit before with Japan and specifically Space Invaders. That's right, we did, because in telling the Space Invaders story, we also talked about copyright in Japan because Space Invaders was the key game in deciding that. We did talk about that specific scenario, but we're going to look at a few different places around the world this time. The United States, the United Kingdom, France, and Japan. We're going to talk about copyright more generally, and we're also going to explain why copyright became an issue at the exact moment it did, and why copyright protection became of such paramount importance to some of these video game companies that they went to court to establish their rights. Well, at least I get to look up all the games that they fight over. We're not going over that many cases, so don't worry. It won't be the worst that you've ever done. Oh, dear. So, I have my clip-on tie, I have my spandex suit, I'm ready to go into the courtroom in order to represent us as we discover copyright and why we should care. A, a spandex suit? Yes. It goes with the clip-on tie very well. I am not going to try to picture that image. <laughs> Moving on! <laughs> I was trying to think of the most horrible combination I could think of to go into a courtroom with. We should probably start this out by just very, very briefly defining what copyright is. Obviously, every single country has its own copyright laws, but they do have a lot of similarities. So for this very broad overview, we're just going to basically use uh, U.S. copyright law, which was last updated in 1976, or last completely overhauled in 1976. There have been amendments since. There are basically three components to a copyright. First, work protected must be original. It doesn't have to be 100% original. It can borrow elements from past things, but it can't just be a reproduction of a previous work, and it can't be just a very short work with just a couple of phrases that are, you know, incredibly common, so it's, it's hard to call that original. 
A compilation can also be copyrighted, but there must be some originality. Just to give an example of how little originality there has to be, I I think the music industry is a good place to go. And I don't mean the modern record industry. I mean classical music. Obviously, we have this public domain thing, which isn't the focus of our conversation today. We're not talking public domain with video games, but all of classical music is in the public domain. Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, Haydn, all in the public domain because uh, they're all hundreds of years ago. However, any of you that have ever sung in a choir, whether in high school or as an adult, will certainly remember that you had copyrighted scores of all of this music by all of these classical composers, and that your organization had to buy this music in order to use it. That's because even though the notes and the text and everything else are long since in the public domain, they do different arrangements. They may give different notations, different dynamic and tempo instructions. If it is a work that was in a foreign language, as for Americans much classical music was, then the translation could be a new translation of the text. Even though the music itself is long out of copyright, the particular score that you're using is still within copyright and therefore can still be sold. So it doesn't take much originality to become a new work, but there has to be some originality to it. It does have to be a work of authorship. It has to be something that was created by a person. There's going to be some real tough questions about AI and how AI works fit into copyright law. And I'm, at some point, I imagine copyright law is going to have to be somehow reinterpreted or reimagined again. But right now, copyright does require authorship. There has to be somebody or a team of somebodies that created something original. Human beings have to be involved in this process. Yes. And then the other major component is what's called fixation. In order for a work to be protectable, it must be fixed in a tangible medium of expression, which means it's something that can be perceived, reproduced, or otherwise communicated. If I stand up in front of a small audience and recite some fantastical tale that I just came up with at the moment, and there were no recording devices, nothing was captured, it was just me doing this thing, I have not created a copyrightable work because it has not been fixed in a reproducible form. That's the other major element. The final thing is even though works have that little C by them, and even though most copyright offices allow you to register works, under modern copyright law, a copyright exists from the moment you create a work. You don't have to register it. You don't have to put the C next to a date within your work. It used to be different, but that's one of the things that the 76 law reformed, is that you don't have to do any of that. You have a copyrighted work the moment you have an original authored work fixed in a tangible medium of expression. Now, if you want to sue, your work does need to be registered, because there needs to be a legal record that proves that you have a copyright on this work. For the purposes of our discussion today, where we're going to be talking about lawsuits, those works do, in general, need to be registered. But just to create a copyright, you don't need to do that registration. So that is basically what a copyright is. The copyright is not the only method to protect a work. 
it is one of a, a suite of intellectual property protections. The other two big ones are patents and trademarks. Now, patents are for ideas as opposed to copyrights, which are for works. It has to be an idea that you prove works. You can't just say, I have an idea for flying cars, and then you can suddenly have the patent on flying cars. You have to show the method you use to create a flying car. You have to prove that your car does, in fact, fly. And you have to prove that you are the first one to ever create a practical working flying car. And if you do all of those things, you can patent something. Patents aren't useful for the difficulties that the video game industry was facing at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, for two major reasons. First of all, it has to be a unique idea. Once a particular method of doing something in video games has been done, if you're doing something that's kind of derivative of that, you can't get a patent on it. But you can still get a copyright because even though the novel, you know, like bring it back to written works, even though the novel, not that anyone patented that, is a standard form, obviously every unique story that's told in novel form is its own copyrightable work. So patents are of limited utility because only the person with the initial idea of a way to do something can use them. The other thing is, of course, they take time to issue. And in the fast-moving world of the video game, by the time a patent has issued on something, it's probably too late to stop the competition. Now, you still may be able to go back and sue them later, as Magnavox and Phillips did in all of those patent lawsuits, but it's going to be too late to stop competition. For instance, Nolan Bushnell patented Pong. Now, it ended up being a bad patent, but that's beside the point. The point we have is that even if it had been a good patent, by the time it issued, there were already dozens of Pong clones on the market. It was too late. So, sorry. Patents aren't really going to work. The other is trademark, which is used to protect very specific recognizable things, a particular image, a particular character, a particular name. A particular mouse. Yes, a particular mouse. Again, that's not the kind of thing that's going to be too helpful. First of all, there aren't many things in video games that you can get a mark on. I mean, you can get a mark on Pac-Man, the title. You can get a mark on Pac-Man, the character. But as soon as a company creates a game called Chomper, where the protagonist is a set of chattering teeth instead of a hockey puck with a slice taken out of it, you're already beyond the trademark. Now, there's still some things you can do. There's confusion. You can argue that someone else's thing can be easily confused with your mark and all of that, but we're not going to go too far down that path. The point is that trademarks protect such specific things that it's unlikely to cover video games, especially in the early days when video games were very generic they didn't really star characters. They were starting to with like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong, but you had so many space shooters that were very generic, just a spaceship, not the kind of thing you can trademark. Random aliens, oftentimes not trademarkable. So none of these other forms were going to work. If there was going to be an establishment of intellectual property rights for video games, especially in the early days, it was going to have to be done through copyright law. Video game copyright. Even though in the late 70s, early 80s, you had the beginnings of a coin-op video game industry, a console video game industry, and a computer game industry, 
copyright law for video games was basically entirely established within the realm of coin-op. All of the landmark cases that dropped at the very beginning of the 1980s establishing copyright law happened in that realm. The reason for that is that was the most mature part of the business. It was the most profitable part of the business. It was the place where losses to similar games that were clones, pirates, counterfeits, parallel imports, etc., were the most harmful to the companies involved, and it was the area where some of the biggest companies in terms of financial clout were operating. Everything that we're going to discuss today happened within the realm of coin-operated video games. In the very early period of coin-op video game history, this wasn't too much of a problem. You know, in 1973, you had the Pong boom, which, of course, we've talked about, and that involved a lot of copying of a single game. After that, you had the video game industry kind of taper off, or the video game component of the coin-op industry, I should say, sort of taper off, and you had the collapse of that market in 74, and then you had kind of a slow rebuilding of the video game market after that. Even though there was some vaguely similar kind of games to each other or genres beginning to emerge, after Pong, there really wasn't a lot of direct copying of video games for the rest of the 1970s. You had very similar games. You could have a game like Seawolf, where you're a submarine shooting at things on the surface of the ocean. And then you could have something like Depth Charge, which was a game where you were on the surface and you were trying to hit submarines, things under the ocean with depth charges that are very similar in their ideas and format and are clearly derived, depth charges clearly derived from the hit game Seawolf. But they're not direct clones, and the market is so small that there isn't a lot of concern about how this is playing out. Copying has been a part of the coin-op industry from the very beginning, all the way back into the 19th century. But it was not something that, over most of that time, was particularly litigated, particularly in copyright law. It would be hard to call most early coin-op games artistic creations of some kind authorial creations, because there's artwork on a pinball for sure, but like the games themselves, they're more mechanical creations than they are artistic works. There were a lot of patent wars in the early days of pinball, but that's kind of where it was playing out. It was playing out in the realm of patent rather than the realm of copyright. You also had a more defined market, particularly in the United States, where you had exclusivity arrangements with distributors, which we've talked about before, which means that the market was pretty small. There were a small number of mom-and-pop businesses involved. Everyone kind of knew each other, particularly in a region, and everything was kind of exclusive. So there really wasn't this big problem with having clones or counterfeits showing up because you did business with your local distributor who did business with the manufacturer, and it was all kind of very small, closed system. Video games changed that. And video games especially changed that after Space Invaders. From what I recall about some of how copyright law developed... Software just sort of threw the really big wrench into the whole thing. 
how do you define something new? And we're sort of experiencing that right now with AI. I know what a book is. I can see what someone might be copywriting that book. And I would see that someone would be making a fake copy where like how much of a change that is. From what I've always observed with copyright is the degree of change is the very crux of the argument. It's like, how much change do I have to make before I have my own independent work that you can't come after me for? For a movie, for music, for book, that is fairly well-defined. For software, especially at this point, and arguably now, that is not very well-defined. Really, what seems to have come about from everything with software and defining what is enough of a derivative software is just sort of like, what is copyrightable in that software? Is it the final product? Yes. Is it the source code? Mm -hmm. That's sort of the really weird crux of it based on comparing that with, say, a movie or a book. I can look at a book and I can see, yes, my source code is the book. That's all I'm reading. The book doesn't manifest something else. The movie is shot from a certain angle on a certain film, tells that story. I don't have to go back to the film and then the film derives that. The source code compiling on different things. With a computer, you can accomplish a lot of different things. How I might sort a list of words. There's a whole bunch of ways you can do that. Mm -hmm. How I do it and how someone else does it are completely different. Exactly. That was kind of the crux of the matter at the beginning, because the cases that we're going to talk about today don't even get to the question of how similar is too similar. This is obviously something that has also been litigated in video game history, and I think we talked about some of those cases in our video game lawsuit episode way back when. But that's not even what we're going to get to today, because what we're going to talk about is what you were just talking about a second ago, is what the heck is even copyrightable in a video game? Yeah, that end result, or is it the code? I think that's the biggest thing yeah. that was decided around this time. Exactly. Or can you even copyright either one, is the question that is being raised here. Because when it comes to the code... That would most closely resemble what the copyright would consider a literary work, because it's written, and it's definitely stored in a tangible fixed medium, but the audience for that code is not They're not reading your the code. Consumer. Exactly. They're not reading the code. The code is produced only for the benefit of the computer that is running the program. Myself, when I am playing Pac-Man. I am not playing Pac-Man by reading the source code. I am playing Pac-Man by playing the game. Does that even count as a literary work if you're just generating code that is used for a machine? And is that really an act of original authorship? Because yes, there is uniqueness in the fact that you're having the computer do a specific thing, but the code is the code. You're using the assembly language. You're using hexadecimal. In uh, these days, in, in arcade games, you weren't using high-level languages like C. But today, you know, you're using C. You're using whatever. And at that point, and even with assembly, you're still having to run that through some sort of interpreter right. into the actual machine code. Exactly. Who is to say that how I do a sort mechanism and how you do a sorting mechanism 
doesn't result in the same machine code. Exactly. So is that really an original work? Is the code itself really an original work when you're just feeding already existing instructions into a machine? And as you said, most of the time, also having that interpreted by the machine. Are you really the author of what's going on or is the machine really the author of what's going on? So that was the issue with that. Then, of course, you have the game itself, which you experience in an audio-visual manner. So that would fall under the concept of an audio-visual work, which is another broad category in copyright law. However, the potential problem we get into here is that of fixation. In order for a work to be protectable, it must be fixed in a tangible medium of expression. Fixed. Cannot be changed. When you watch a movie, Obviously, you can start the movie at different points. You can personally rewind, fast forward, skip chapters, depending on what kind of device you're watching that movie on. But the actual work is the same every time. With a video game, I have to deal with end user input. Exactly. So how I play Pac-Man and how Alex plays Pac-Man and how both of us play Space Invaders is completely different. Exactly. And even something as simple as on this playthrough, I start Space Invaders by moving the joystick to the left. And on my next playthrough, I start by moving my joystick to the right. I've already created a divergence in how games of Space Invaders have played out. So is that really fixed? Because it can be different every single time somebody plays it. This is the kind of crap that lawyers get into, which lay people like me stare at them and go, what is wrong with you? (laughs) But this actually does have relevance. It really does. I can imagine there's a lot of you out there right now going, who cares? (laughs) The answer is the people that stand to make or lose a whole lot of money on these very tiny questions. As I said before, once we hit Space Invaders, there is so much money at stake. It's hard to fully grasp how completely and utterly Space Invaders changed everything in the coin-operated amusement space. We're not just talking about video games, we're talking about coin-operated amusements broadly. Obviously, we have taken stabs several times at talking about that. We're not going to go back into the details of the creation and and spread of Space Invaders again. But the impact is enormous because you had an industry that, as I said, was relatively small and relatively insular. In the United States, for instance, you had the same distributors and operators that had basically been doing this thing since coin-ops kind of second golden age in the Depression. Still running everything. Exclusivity has already been broken apart by video games, like Tank that came before, but it's still a very insular kind of world. In Europe, you have firms that go back even longer than that. In Britain, for instance, it's, it's a lot of the firms that were first establishing themselves in the resorts in the coastal resorts in the in the late 19th and early 20th century those firms are still running things you know different people in charge now but often family businesses this is an industry that has been very static for decades then space invaders comes along 
and it's so ridiculously popular worldwide. It is a worldwide phenomenon. It hits hard everywhere it goes. Suddenly, there is so much money to be made on these video games that everyone is clamoring to have them. Convenience stores want them. Grocery stores want them. More people seeing there's money to be made want to open their own game rooms or arcades. The BizOp people come back. Big Jeffrey's Space Invaders Emporium is getting involved. I think a lot of us, especially the older listeners, can appreciate this more. When things are small, when it's just you and a few buddies working together, trying to accomplish something, do something fun, everyone's just sort of like amicable. We'll do this, we'll do that, we'll get everything good. Once money, especially significant money, gets involved, it is amazing how much people change. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's not just people changing, it's also there are so many new people coming into the business. All sorts of people that have never been involved in CoinOp before are suddenly getting involved in CoinOp. And some of them are legitimate. Some of them are entrepreneurs that are like, I've heard these video games are taking off. There are these things called arcades. I'm going to get one. And then there are the less scrupulous people, the people that are like, all of these rubes going after video games. I'm going to do Big Jeffrey Space Invaders Emporium and, you know, rip them all off and make my own buck. There's so many strangers getting involved in the business, and there are so many new locations opening up to video games, either new arcades being established or just businesses that before would never have a video game having video games. Just about any place where there might be some kind of wait for services are starting to put in video games. Restaurants, pizza parlors, ice cream shops, doctors, and dentist offices. They're becoming so profitable that why not? Why not spend a couple of thousand dollars on a game that within a month or so is going to make you back all of that money, and then after that is just pure profit? You didn't need to necessarily be discerning anymore. You know, in the early days, in, in the pinball days, you had to understand what a good game was. You had to kind of have a, an understanding of the industry and of the public that plays these games to know which pinballs or which other amusements are probably going to do well and make your buying decisions based on that. Space Invaders and the entire subgenre of shoot 'em up space-based video games are just so mainstreamly popular, something that everyone wants so much that you don't need to be discerning anymore. You don't need to be an expert anymore to make money. Now, obviously, three, four years down the line, this is going to come back to bite the entire industry in the ass in a very tangible way, because as things develop over time, there's such a flood of product that you do need to be an expert and you do need to be discerning in order to survive in the business. And since you have all of these people that are neither of those things in, they can't figure out the business, they make poor choices, and the whole thing comes crashing down. But in this early period, in the 79, 80, 81 period, you do not need to be an expert in this to make money. You just need to have a location that has enough people passing by to put quarters in your machine that there are going to be people using your cabinet. You don't need to really understand very well if a game is good or the psychology behind the games or anything like that. You just need a location with bodies 
and you are going to make money. And so everyone is getting into this business, and the manufacturers cannot keep up with demand. They can't. That is why you have the issues of, at Big Jeffrey Video Game Emporium, we have to outsource our manufacturing because, obviously, Japan can't keep up. Mm -hmm. So I am happy to announce Big Jeffrey's Manufacturing Empire, where we (laughs) manufacture everything that you want to have. Right now, we're focusing purely on video games because... Well, that's what you want. Exactly. Never mind that very cheap plywood. Never mind this very shoddy soldering job. And never mind this crappily programmed ROM. That's right. So you have a lot of different things going on here. One of them is what you're talking about, where manufacturing starts up, sometimes local. More often in Europe, there would be some kind of local fly-by-night operations than in the United States. Much more often from the Far East particularly Taiwan, Hong Kong, South Korea, and Japan itself as well, that are starting to manufacture clones of popular games, sometimes straight-up rip-offs, sometimes with very minor variations, usually with a different name. You have this starting to go on. You also have the phenomenon of, because the companies are trying to keep up with manufacturing, you have a lot of sub-licensing going on for manufacture, which we've talked about before. This is a particular Japanese phenomenon. This isn't something that tends to happen in the United States at all, but the Japanese economic miracle in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was in part brought about by a concerted government effort to promote cooperation amongst businesses. All of these businesses in Japan are competitors with each other, but they also work together in certain ways and help finance each other a little bit as a way of building a strong Japanese business community as a whole. I think both the fact that Japan is a more communal culture than, say, the United States, and the fact that the government, to completely rebuild the economy after World War II, felt that they needed to take a strong collaborative hand, shaped this. So in Japan, even to this day, you have a slightly more collaborative environment even amongst competitors in the video game industry. They'll invest in each other, they'll subcontract with each other, and try to keep the entire industry strong in these ways. And this time was no different. So as games like Space Invaders and Galaxian became very popular, they would make sub-licensing deals or sub-manufacturing deals where they would let other companies manufacture games. And some of these companies would be allowed to sell them then themselves, put their own logo on it, and maybe change the name and maybe even make some minor gameplay adjustments. I think, for instance, of Irem's version of Space Invaders. The company was still IPM at the time. They hadn't changed their name to Irem yet, so their version was called IPM Invader. It was in color, unlike Space Invaders, and had a couple of other minor changes, but that was not a clone. That was a licensed variation of Space Invaders. They entered a deal with Taito because Taito could not keep up with demand, and they would rather sub-license and take a cut of that than just lose a portion of the market because they didn't have the factory capacity to fully meet demand. Some of them would be able to do their own games like that. Others 
particularly the bigger competitors, were just given the rights to manufacture and they would be given some money in order to do the manufacturing, but they weren't selling them themselves. Like Taito sublicensed, you know, the big guys like Sega to also manufacture games for them, but they didn't allow Sega to sell Space Invaders games because Sega is another big company and that would take too much away from them, but they allowed Sega to manufacture for them. This kind of stuff was common. And they also did that sometimes overseas as well, like in the United States, not so much. But in Europe, they would designate companies to do manufacturing for them and then stipulate that they can only sell them in their market. I mean, I guess they did that in North America too, technically, sure. But the difference is that the United States is a huge continent-spanning country. So those companies there tended to also have the Canadian rights as well. So, you know, they were the North American rights. So two gigantic continent-spanning countries in the United States and Canada, they had their hands full just filling demand in their own domestic market. So that's what they did. Whereas in Europe, where you have a bunch of tiny countries, they could fill demand in their own market and theoretically fill demand in other parts of Europe as well. So the Japanese companies would sublicense only for their specific country in Europe. Space Invaders, I think, gave Zakaria the rights to do Space Invaders in Italy, but only in Italy. However, there was so much demand everywhere, and there was a complete inability to keep up with supply that these sublicensees would also start to sell in ways they were not allowed to. They would either exceed their quotas, because these sub-licenses would usually involve a specific quota of how many games you could manufacture. They would either exceed their quotas and sell the extra, or they would ship their product to regions that they were not allowed to sell them under the terms of their contract. This is a concept known as parallel importing where instead of importing a game or buying a game from the official organization authorized to sell the game, you import a parallel copy that is still a fully 100% legal copy of the game. It's not a clone or a counterfeit or a pirate, but that game is not authorized to be sold in the territory it has just been imported into. You have games spreading in a variety of ways. Oftentimes, the distributors and operators, they just need product. Most of them are not shifty. Most of them are not trying to be duplicitous. In this environment, it can be really hard to tell what is a legitimate copy of a game and what is a counterfeit. They're not necessarily trying in every case to circumvent. They're just like, we need a game. This person is offering a game. I'm going to buy it. It's not my responsibility. If this is illegal, if this shouldn't have been imported into the country, like in a parallel import case, that's customs job to figure out. I am not the U.S. Customs Authority. I am not the U.K. Customs Authority. All I know is this game is here, and I need a game to make money. That's where the burden of proof and the burden of who is responsible for really caring about it is just sort of like, you go to your big box store and you want to buy a screwdriver. I don't need to know whether or not that screwdriver is illegal in the United States or in Europe or wherever. It might have some wrong serial number or something on it. It's not my responsibility to hunt it down, and it's not a reasonable thing for the cops to break in my door and go, Ah, you have an illegal screwdriver. 
we're taking you off to jail. <laughs> right. Now, you know, obviously illegal things will be seized. It's not like distributors and operators feel like that they should be the police of this. The business has changed so dramatically because there's so much demand. It's not just that there's more demand for these games than there used to be. It used to be that you could get away with a rotation of products. Pinball is pinball, especially back then. These days, pinball have so many gimmicks in them. And I don't mean gimmick in a bad way. I just mean you have a lot of unique targets. You'll have unique models on the board. You'll have voice and audio, and, and you're like telling a story almost, uh, particularly since so many pinballs are licensed. You're telling the story of Game of Thrones or The Walking Dead or Star Trek in some abstract way through a machine. But back in the day, there wasn't that much of a difference between different pinball tables. I mean, yes, there'd be different arrays of targets, different sequences of scoring points. I'm not saying that they're just all the same. I don't want any pinball aficionados to come back and say, how dare you say all pinball plays the same? Because no, I realize it doesn't. But it wasn't the kind of thing where you would necessarily seek out like, oh my gosh, that one table was so cool that I'm only going to play that table forever and ever. If your establishment doesn't have this one pinball table, I'm going to go someplace that does. It's like, no. If you had your local pinball spot, you would play the games that were available there. You know, maybe you'd get bored with a game after a while and want something new because you mastered it and you knew all there was to it. Your local operator knew that, so of course, after a respectable period of time, they would trade out the pinball table they had and, and put in a new pinball table, and then this cycle would repeat itself. You chose your location and played what they happened to have. You didn't decide what you want to play and then hunt down a location. So you had a rotation system, and you had a second-hand market, where if you were an operator with multiple locations, you would put your new product in your high-earning locations first, so that it could make a lot of money there. Then, when it was no longer making money there, you would rotate it to your second-best location and let it earn a little more money there. It won't make as much, both because it's your second-earning location and because, since it's older, some of the people that go to your second-earning location may also go to another location sometimes, and they've already played it, so they're like, eh, whatever. So you rotate it through all your locations. Then, when you're done with that, you can trade it back in to your distributor, just like you trade in an old car when you're buying a car for credit on your new machine. Then your distributor can unload it on the secondhand market, or maybe you don't even trade it back into your distributor, or you unload it on the secondhand market yourself. You know, very similar to like the used car business. So there was a secondhand market for these games as well. And so then tertiary locations, which don't make a lot of money, but don't want to spend a lot of money on games either because they don't make a lot of money, can buy the model from six months ago, from nine months ago, at a cheaper price, and then put that in their location. This system worked fine because it wasn't big business and the public didn't care that much. I mean, they wanted novelty, so they wanted to see different product every so often as they came in. But, you know, it, it was just whatever, essentially. It's like, okay, they've got a couple of games in the bar. I'll have a couple of beers. I'll play a couple of rounds of pinball. Or, you know, I'm at the bowling alley with my kids and... My kids are bored while I'm bowling, so they're going to go over and play the games in the bowling alley while mom and dad are on their bowling team doing their thing. You know, I mean, that's just kind of the mentality. But now with video games, with Space Invaders, it's like, this game is so amazing, I am addicted, I need to play Space Invaders. What, you don't have Space Invaders? Okay, bye bye I'm going someplace else. 
you needed to have one of these games. And it didn't necessarily have to be space invaders. It could be cosmic invaders. It could be monsters from space. I mean, they didn't care what the name was. They didn't care what the company was. But it's just like you have to have a game with this kind of adrenaline pumping, shoot all the aliens gameplay, or I'm not coming to your establishment. It destroyed the secondhand market. It destroyed the idea that you could rotate. You can't be like, oh, I'll put Space Invaders in my number one location, and then six months later, I'll put it in my number two location. No, your number two location isn't going to exist anymore in six months because nobody's going there because you don't have Space Invaders. Rotation was dead. And because games were falling all over themselves to release new novelty, because people would get good at the games and then they'd want something a little tougher, a little harder, the replacement rate of games has become so acute that there's no secondhand market anymore. Because even as big a craze as Space Invaders is, once Galaxian comes along, then Galaxian's the new hotness. So nobody really wants to play Space Invaders anymore. Now every place has Galaxian. So you can't have a secondhand market. You can't be like, well, you know, I only get a few people playing coin-op games in my shop, so I'll wait until it's super cheap and then I'll pick it up. I won't make much money on it, but I wasn't going to make much money anyway, so fine. It's like, no, once Galaxian's the new hotness and Space Invaders is dead, no one's going to want to play Space Invaders anymore. So it's like, well, I can't go buy a Space Invaders a year after it's come out because nobody cares about it anymore. The rotation market is destroyed. The secondhand market is destroyed. Everybody has to have the latest, hottest games right now. If you're a distributor, You need to be offering only the latest and greatest games right now. So there's a flood of games coming from Japan. All these companies are getting involved. It's not just the big guys like Taito and Namco. It's Jaleco. It's Nichibitsu. It's Data East. It's Universal USA, which is not the film studio. It's complicated. Different company. But there's all of these other companies. There's Konami, Irem. Everybody is coming in and being like, I've got the game that's going to be the next big thing. Distributors need that. There's this flood of product. And in this flood of product, it's very hard to tell what's legitimate and what isn't legitimate. What's shady, what's not shady, what's too much of a copy, what isn't enough of a copy. Distributors and operators don't want to be the arbiters of this. So, of course, all of these games enter the market. They get in, and and the counterfeiting stuff gets in, and the parallel import stuff gets in, and a lot of games come in from Taiwan and South Korea, and illegitimately from Japan, as opposed to through officially licensed deals. In Europe, it's even worse, because Europe doesn't really have a lot of big factories. In the United States, there's a little more control over this process. Now, counterfeiting, cloning, parallel importing is still running rampant. But there's a little more control over this process because the Japanese companies are making licensing deals with big American companies that have big factories, like Midway, like Williams. And then, of course, domestically, you have companies like Atari, who are also making product domestically and who have their own big factories. You have these big factory operations. They have the financial wherewithal to go over and go to the Japanese trade shows, and they have the clout to make deals directly with these Japanese businessmen that are very binding to release these games and do big production runs in North America. In Europe, it's mostly distributors, and the few manufacturers that do exist tend to be pretty small manufacturers. 
they don't necessarily go to the Japanese trade shows and make big deals directly with the Japanese companies. They don't necessarily have the money for that. Now, they're still making deals, but they're often having to wait until the trade shows in Europe to meet representatives there and do their deals there. They're, they're missing out on the direct. That makes things even more confusing. You have sometimes Japanese companies in Europe promise the same game to multiple distributors. This happened with an Irem game called Uniwars S, which created a big scandal in the United Kingdom because it came to people's attention that Irem had promised the game to like four or five different distributors. <laughs> it's a lot harder to get deals with these big Japanese companies. And so there's a lot more of an impetus to go the piracy route, to go to the Taiwanese companies, to go to the South Korean companies, or to go to the Italian companies, because Italy has one of the more established manufacturing bases. So companies in Italy don't tend to care that they're only supposed to sell their games in Italy. They'll manufacture the games and they'll sell them all over Europe. Sometimes they'll be knockoffs, sometimes they'll be officially licensed versions, but in either case, they won't be authorized to sell them outside of Italy. Italy becomes a huge secondary market for unauthorized games in Europe. They do a lot of business across the continent. In France, there's a company called Stambouli that was created by a trio of Lebanese. They had international contacts, and so they set up a subsidiary in Japan. It was basically a shell subsidiary. They had a P.O. box in Japan, but it just redirected to their French address. They set up a kind of shell company called Karateko, which they claimed was a Japanese company that was bringing product into France. But in fact, it was just a front for their French company, and they were importing stuff from like Southeast Asia and whatnot and flooding the market with counterfeits. Obviously, everybody made a lot of money. Taito made a lot of money on Space Invaders. Midway made a lot of money on Space Invaders. Atari made a lot of money on Asteroids. Namco made a lot of money on Pac-Man, but they were also losing money to this tidal wave of product. Something had to be done. Finally, all of these companies started turning to the courts. It can be a real tricky thing trying to introduce a new concept to a court. The courts like precedent. They like to have things to go. Yes. This is very similar to this other case and this other case, and this other case. We're just doing a slight little twist on it. That's great. Also, I do not like setting new precedent. That is bad. That makes me sad. <laughs> so, you know, these cases are decided by judges. We don't leave things like copyright in the hands of juries because it is far too technical. In murder, we have a jury of your peers come in to determine how credible the evidence is. Everyone kind of understands that murder is killing somebody. And I realize that there's nuance. There's first degree, second degree, third degree, voluntary manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter. But the point is, the idea of killing someone, we're not here to define what murder is. We're just here to be like, do we believe it when the prosecution says that a murder was committed? Copyright law, it's like very technical. So you want somebody that really understands the law to look at it. So this will be decided by judges, but judges are not going to be experts on the medium itself. They're going to be experts on the law, but they're not going to know anything about the medium. Of course, since a judgeship is something that someone achieves, generally speaking, 
not always, but generally speaking, after they already have a successful legal career of some kind, judges are going to tend to be older. They're not all going to be in their 80s or anything, but even a judge in their 40s is probably not somebody that is up on the latest happenings in the local arcade, which, even though some of these games have broad appeal, is still largely the domain of a teenage or early adult audience. You're talking about not only bringing a new medium before the court, but you're talking about bringing a medium before the court that the court doesn't necessarily even have any experience with or any understanding of. Some of these cases are going to take some time as a result to work through. I imagine that they take so much time that the tangible benefits aren't always there on those individual games for the companies that bring the suits, but they have to bring the suits and they have to establish the copyright because then once they have that established, then in subsequent cases, they can go in and very easily argue their case and seize machines and get injunctions and have a more effective weapon against the pirates. It's not going to make the pirates suddenly vanish but it will finally give them a weapon against them. Kind of funny, the first case, a landmark case in this area, to be filed actually is one of the last ones to be decided, because we talked about this in our Space Invaders episode. The Japanese legal system moves particularly slowly, much slower than the U.S. legal system does. So in Japan, which is the first place that, of course, video games hit this big, because Space Invaders is Japanese, so it hits big in Japan first before it hits big in the United States and then Europe. This process begins there. There were a couple of companies that were very aggressive, and that was Taito and Sega. Taito is very aggressive from the beginning with Space Invaders because, as I said, Space Invaders' demand was just on a whole nother level. And we talked about this in our Space Invaders episodes. I'll just say this again, you know, for as a reminder. In the United States, Space Invaders sold between 60 and 70,000 copies, which was far above and beyond what anything in coin-op had sold in the United States, like, since the Depression. That's across the entire country. In Japan, Taito and its sub-licensees sold, like, 200,000 machines in a country that is the geographical size of California. It's a whole different scale from what happened in the United States. Many, 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 many games. Almost four times as many games sold as the entire continental United States. Well, not just the continental United States, Alaska and Hawaii too, is the entire United States. Almost four times as many games as sold in the United States in an area the size of California. There was still massive pirating, copying, illegal copies, and companies that were legally authorized to manufacture the game, but manufactured more than they were allowed. Taito files suit right away for copyright protection in 1979, right at the height of this boom. They file against a company called Ing, I-N-G, Ing Enterprises. To put a finer point on it, it wasn't Space Invaders itself that they actually filed suit over. It was Space Invaders Part 2, the sequel. Ing Enterprises basically ripped off the ROM and put it into cabinets of their own make. This was a straight ripoff, and so they sued under the copyright law. The other method 
that Japanese companies used. They had another tool in their toolbox that wasn't necessarily available in other countries. That was another law called the Unfair Competition Prevention Act. What this law does is it regulates infringement of trade secrets, unfair usage of a well-known sign, like a trademark, misleading representation regarding the place of origin, or imitation of the configuration of a third party's product. Sega actually took a different approach when they, a couple of years later, decided to start suing companies. They did it under the Unfair Competition Prevention Act. Taito also sued under this law, some other companies as well, because they could argue under that law that there was substantial confusion and deception where slight derivatives of their products were being manufactured by other companies and were being confused for their products. That was another tool that was used, but being able to establish copyright would be much more valuable than relying on that other law. But both of these things were going on. Konami and Sega were together, and Konami was having a huge problem with its games being pirated. Their game Scramble, one of the first scrolling shooters, was so thoroughly pirated that the president of the company, Kagamasa Kozuki, accidentally touched off a Yakuza clan war because there were Yakuza that were ripping off the game, and he kind of then went to another Yakuza clan, and then things got ugly. They had such a bad time with Scramble that they entered into an agreement with Sega to manufacture and release Frogger big hit game, because they didn't want a repeat of Scramble. They wanted a big manufacturer. Konami was a small factory at the time. They wanted a big manufacturer to put out the game to help try to forestall that, not just flood the market so that there was less space for the copiers, but also a company that had the legal resources to more aggressively go after the counterfeiters. Sega also did something else clever, because you see, Japan's a little different. I mentioned that in the United States, you don't have to register copyright, but if you want to do a lawsuit, you do. In Japan, you technically can register copyright, but almost nobody does. Nobody really cares. Because copyright registration is very rare in Japan, but is kind of necessary in other countries, I presume this is why this exists, it is possible to gain a registration for a foreign product that is already copyrighted someplace else and basically transfer that registration, so to speak, into Japan. In that case, you don't have to prove anything about the work. They just basically take it at face value that, okay, this has been copyrighted in this other country, so it must be a copyrightable work, therefore will allow registration in Japan. And so Sega, in addition to all of its Frogger stuff, they actually do that with the Gremlin game Astro Blaster. Astro Blaster is a game that their American subsidiary Gremlin created in uh, 1981. They registered the copyright in the United States because even though the state of copyright law was not fully settled yet in the United States, companies were still already going ahead and registering works and then hoping that the courts would agree that the copyrights were valid. So it was registered in the United States. In Japan, Sega registered the work by basically saying, this is something that we release here that has been copyrighted in another country, so we are registering copyright here. That was legal. That was allowed. So that was actually the very first game that received copyright protection in Japan, but it received that copyright protection essentially on a technicality. 
Meanwhile, through all of this, the Space Invaders case is still wending its way through the courts because, as I said, the Japanese courts move very, very slowly. So it wasn't until December 6th of 1982, just over three years after the lawsuit was first filed in November 1979, that the Tokyo District Court finally ruled that video games are copyrightable and that they specifically fall into the category of literary works. Video game programs are such, I'm quoting, that they are an expression in symbolic language of various commands and information used to display game contents on the TV screen. Logical thinking of a program compiler is required, and the program in this case is a creative expression of his own scientific thought that can be protected by copyright as stipulated in the copyright law. We're going to see that different courts take different approaches, and different countries take different approaches. But in Japan, the decision was made that this was a literary copyrighted work, and that the computer, just like if you have a screenplay, the screenplay is meant to be brought to life by actors. And so you have an artistic work that is the screenplay, and that work is expressed by the actors that say the words in the screenplay. In this case, the computer code is a literary work, and the computer essentially serves as the actor in the way the computer executes the code is the expression of that literary work. That's not really the rationale that we're going to see in some of the other countries that we look at, but that was the rationale in Japan as to why this was a literary work and therefore subject to copyright. I can sort of see where they're coming at from this. They're saying, hey, we're trying to protect the code here, but we're also trying to protect and cover ourselves as far as the interpretation of that, running it through a compiler, having the ability for people to interact with the software. We're trying to take what we know and shoehorn in this weird edge case. Exactly. And and obviously, all the work everyone's going to be doing is in a way dealing with edge cases. But it's interesting to see the logic they use to reach it. And this Japanese logic is quite unique. We're not going to see a rationale quite like that anywhere else. So now we turn to the United States. In the United States, the main problem was the imports. Unlike in Japan and Europe, domestic copying wasn't really that much of an issue. What was an issue was the importing of boards from Japan, from Southeast Asia, from South Korea, some of which, as I said, were just complete knockoff counterfeits, and some of which were completely 100% legal games in the territory where they were manufactured, but they were not meant for export. In these cases, you have the official licensees of these games going after infringers. Most of the problem was with Japanese imports. I'm sure there was some problems with counterfeit domestic games, but by and large, the problem that the United States had wasn't with the asteroids and defenders of the world. It was with the Space Invaders, Scrambles, Pac-Mans, Donkey Kongs of the world that they were getting from their uh, Japanese arrangements. Though that's not entirely true, because the first case that kind of addressed this and first laid down that video games could be copyrighted was actually a case 
involving a Cinematronics game, Star Castle. But there was a Far Eastern company, K-Noma, that was manufacturing counterfeit versions of the game and selling them. I presume they were probably not sending them back to the North American market for resale. They were probably reselling them in the Far East. But this was an example of going after an infringer of an American game being created by a Far Eastern company, other than the far more common scenario of going after counterfeiters or importers of Japanese games in the United States. Now, I don't have this opinion, and the reason for that is that it was an unpublished opinion. I need to go into a little bit of legal technical background here. When a case is decided by a judge, which in this case, you know, these are cases decided by judges, the judge issues an opinion on the case where they write out their rationale. Anyone who follows the Supreme Court at all in the United States understands this concept, but it's not just the Supreme Court that issues opinions. It's appellate courts and district courts that issue opinions as well when they make a ruling. Just the fact that an opinion happens does not mean it establishes precedent. The opinion guides in the case, obviously, that it's in, but for a case to be precedential, it actually has to be published which means that it is compiled in a book. It's all done online now, but I think they still issue print copies as well, in a book called A Court Reporter that publishes in book form all of the opinions issued by a court over a period of time. So if you're looking at a court case, you'll often see a citation after it that'll have like a number, and then it'll say F2D or F1D or whatever, and then there'll be another number, and then there'll be a date. What that is, is it's saying it's the such-and-such volume of such-and-such court's court reporter on page such-and-such in this year. That's the citation to where the opinion was published. Only published opinions establish precedent because basically if it isn't published, you're not going to be able to get your hands on it easily to submit it to a court. This K-Noma case was ruled in Cinematronics' favor, and it was the earliest one, as far as I know, that did have a ruling in somebody's favor because it was decided April 20th, 1982. It's unpublished, so I don't have the text of it, and it doesn't really create any broader precedent. But I just wanted to mention it because it was a very early case in this area. It's just an unpublished opinion. So in short, an unpublished opinion is just all the courts are required. I guess there were all the judges are required to have an opinion somewhere, but they may elect to publish it or not publish it, depending on how strongly or not strongly they feel about it. Exactly. That is exactly correct. Now, I mean, all Supreme Court opinions are published, and I'm not sure if all appellate court opinions are published or not, but this tends to be more of a thing in the district courts because they hear so many cases that if they published all of them, it would take up so much and would just confuse things. So at the discretion of the court, the court can decide that there really isn't precedential value to the case. They feel it was a very minor issue. They feel that they didn't really deviate from what came before. They feel like even though maybe they did something new, it was so specific to this case that it really wouldn't apply to other cases. So they choose not to publish the opinion. If an opinion is unpublished, it cannot be cited as a precedent. You can't use it in a legal brief to say, well, this court ruled this way, so you should rule this way too. 
it was an unpublished opinion, but there were two published opinions, one in 1982 and one in 1983, that between them kind of established the copyright law in the United States. The first of these was Stern Electronics v. Kaufman. This one, just like Konami was having trouble with Scramble in Japan, Stern was the official licensee of Scramble in the United States, and they were having huge problem with counterfeiting as well, which comes as no surprise. I mean, the same games would have problems in Japan and the United States because, of course, this would start in Japan to feed the domestic market, so you'd have all of these Japanese or close-proximity East Asian companies gearing up to flood the Japanese market. And so then, of course, once these games are released in the United States as well, then they'd start flooding the U.S. market with the same counterfeits. So Scramble was a huge problem for Konami in Japan, touched off a Yakuza war accidentally, and Scramble was a huge problem for Stern in the United States. There was a company called Omni Video Games that was owned by this guy, Kaufman, which is why the case is Stern Electronics v. Kaufman, that was selling knockoffs of Scramble. This was argued in uh, the Eastern District of New York, and it was appealed. The ruling was appealed. The court did find in Stern's favor, both courts. In the United States, video games were not generally registered as literary works. When you go to register a copyright in the United States, there is an examiner at the copyright office that helps you figure out how your work should be registered. When you register a copyright with the U.S. Copyright Office, you have to provide them a copy of the thing you're registering. The Copyright Office doesn't want video game cabinets. They're rather large. And require electricity to run and things like that. So they're trying to figure out what should be submitted. The examiners in the U.S. decided that rather than literary works, rather than the Japanese approach of a literary work, that what should be submitted should be submitted as an audiovisual work. Since they don't want that arcade cabinet shipped to them, They said, videotape a playthrough of the game, and we'll register your game as an audiovisual work using this videotape as the submitted version of the thing. Since these were registered as audiovisual works, the arguments around why this was not copyrightable were around kind of that second thing we talked about, whereas every time you play the game, it's different. If you're submitting a videotape, the way it's actually played could be completely different from how it was played on the videotape. So maybe that videotape protects that one specific way of playing through the game that was created on the videotape, but it doesn't protect against all the other ways you could presumably go through the game. It's different every time. Omni argued that the audiovisual element is executed by game code in real time based on player input, so it's not an original copyrightable work of Stern Electronics because of that aspect of it. The court, quite sensibly, in my opinion, rejected that argument that a new audiovisual work is essentially created each time a player plays the game. Even though, yes, the player can choose to go up, down, left, right, fire at this point, fire at that point, destroy this enemy, not destroy that enemy, most of the elements are still fixed. The player's spaceship is the same spaceship. The player's laser blasts are always the same. It's the same graphic, it's the same sound. The enemies that you fight are always the same enemies. They always make the same sound. There's the same sound effects. There's the same level layouts. There's the same graphics. 
it's not completely different every time you play it. It is drawing from a fixed set of audiovisual elements to create the experience. Thank God they didn't have to fight a roguelike back then and try to copyright it. <laughs> right, right. Even though every playthrough is even more different, obviously it, it would be more tricky, but the court would still, I think, generally find the same way because even though every playthrough is randomized, it is still drawing from a fixed stock of experiences. It's just randomizing them in infinite combination. The idea is that, no, just because every gameplay experience is different doesn't mean that there aren't common shared fixed elements. This was kind of the landmark precedential case in copyright law. It was uh, decided January 20th, 1982. It established the idea that a video game was an audiovisual work and therefore could be copyrighted. There's another landmark case that was argued in late 1982 and decided in April 1983 that we also need to go over briefly, and that is Midway Manufacturing versus Arctic, not Arctic, but Arctic, A-R-T-I-C, International. To uh, clarify that for the hearing impaired like me. Not Arctic, like it is cold, we are down in Antarctica, freezing our butts off, we are pirates, very angry about a tick. Arr! Ticks. <laughs> we are angry pirates about ticks. That's right. Arctic International. We just missed recording this on Talk Like a Pirate Day, I think. Anywho, Arctic International was a Hong Kong-based company that was making both direct ripoffs of games, direct clones of games, but was also making something called a speed-up kit as well. So a speed-up kit is basically an enhancement for a game. Oftentimes it speeds up the gameplay, though it can also do other things like provide new enemy encounters, that kind of thing. Probably the most famous speed-up kit in history is the Street Fighter II Rainbow Edition speed-up, which ultimately led Capcom to release Street Fighter II Turbo to play much faster. But speed-up kits were a common thing in the early days of the industry because, as I said, demand for new games was insatiable. The market was flooded with games as a result, and so games would lose their value somewhat quickly. The entire concept of video games at the time, starting with Space Invaders, was really based around the high-score concept. So players would get very adept at a game, they'd master a game, particularly if it had patterns. Not all games did, but some like Pac-Man did. Then they would just get very good at the games, and then they would be able to play for hours and hours and hours on a single quarter and just keep racking up bigger and bigger scores. Now, obviously, only the most elite players could do that. But even lesser players would get to the point where they mastered the game about as well as they were going to be able to master it, got a score about as good as they were ever going to be able to score on it, then were either going to, if they're elite players, just rack up ever more impressive scores on a small number of quarters and thus deny the operator income, or they're going to be like, well, I've done everything I can in this game, time to move on to the next game. As I said, there was no second-hand or rotation market anymore with video games like there used to be in coin-op because of these new pressures. So one way to combat that was to create a speed-up kit, which was basically a ROM enhancement where you would hack like a daughterboard onto the game or hack the ROM in some way 
and change the gameplay, make it more challenging, which usually involved making it faster at the very least, hence the name Speed Up Kits, in order to extend the life of a game, make it more challenging again, make it more interesting again, so that you didn't have to buy a full new video game. Of course, these speed-up kits were entirely 100% not authorized by the manufacturers. Manufacturers didn't want to do speed-up kits. They wanted to sell you a whole new game and make more money on that. But operators want to save money. One of the things that I forgot to mention earlier that I should have mentioned, but I'll go ahead and mention it now because why not, is that the main advantage for operators and distributors for these pirated games is because these were just derivatives or they were manufacturing licenses, the companies putting out this product didn't have to put any R&D work into creating the game. Some of them were shipping full cabinets, but some of them were just shipping boards as well, and then you put it in your own cabinet. Since their overhead was much smaller, the counterfeit stuff was always much cheaper because they didn't have to pay engineers to develop this stuff, and in many cases, they also didn't have to pay to have cabinets made, either. Speed-up kits, it's the same thing. The manufacturer wants to sell you a brand new game. We may remember from our uh, picking up the pieces after the uh, crash episode that there was no such thing as kits at this time. Manufacturers and distributors resisted kits because they wanted to make the money that comes from selling a full cabinet. They could make more money on that. Manufacturers didn't want to do enhancement boards or speed-up kits either, because if they get tired of a game, they want to sell you their next game. They don't want to sell you, for a fraction of the cost, this new board. So this was entirely a counterfeit cloning business doing speed-up kits. But the argument was, even if, and remember at this time copyright law is still very unsettled with video games, but even if video games are subject to copyright, I am not copying any of their code. I am not copying any of their audiovisual elements. And I am not altering their code because they would not generally do these as ROM hacks. They would generally do these as daughter boards that you would attach to the game. So you're not even messing with the original product. This is very similar to the legal issues that would come up around the Game Genie in the console world about a decade later. I'm not messing with the game. If I separate your game from my device, I get the same result as before. All I'm doing is adding in new features, taking advantage of what's already there, and arguably, I should have copyright protection for my extra thing that I'm adding to this. Exactly. That is their argument. Midway sued, and the courts were not sympathetic to this. It's slightly different from the Game Genie case. Obviously, Game Genie wins their case, but in that case, they're not adding anything on top. They're literally just changing what sectors of the memory are being accessed at what times. In this case, there is a change. It's just not a change that interferes with the original code or the original elements created by the company. But the courts decided that this did qualify as a derivative work. So there is an idea in copyright law of a derivative work, which is a work that is based on an already existing work. Grim fairy tales, Snow White, things like that. Right. There has to be a major copyrightable element present in the derivative work in order for it to run afoul of copyright law. The courts did rule that in this case that the game that's being played, this was a Galaxian speed-up kit specifically, the game that is being played is still mostly Galaxian with just a few small changes. 
So because there are major copyrightable elements still being used, because it's not a complete replacement, they're not replacing the game, they're enhancing the game. So there are still major copyrightable elements present in the game, which means that it does qualify as a derivative work. This law kind of worked hand in hand. The Stern case established the idea that video games were copyrightable or audiovisual works. The Arctic case came to the same conclusion. It was in a different court. They also had to answer the question of whether a video game was a copyrightable audiovisual work, because Arctic was making those same arguments that Omni were around that. They reached the same conclusion on that issue, but then they also had to rule on an additional issue, which is where do speed-up kits fit into this. They ruled that speed-up kits are a derivative work and therefore are also disallowed under U.S. copyright law. So that's the American situation. That case, it was appealed as well, and it was originally decided in March 1982, and then the appeal was heard. The appeal was decided in April 1983. These two cases, and there were other cases coming through at the same time because a lot of courts were grappling with the same issues at the same time. So there are other cases I could mention during the same period. Nintendo was going after a lot of Donkey Kong infringers. I could mention those cases. Because this had to be decided a few different times in a few different courts before it was finally completely settled as law. But these two cases, the Arctic case and the Stern-Kaufman case, with an honorable mention to the Cinematronics case that was not published, are kind of the beginnings of establishing that, yes, these are audiovisual works. So now, very briefly, I just want to go through two other jurisdictions. We won't spend as long on them because the European jurisdictions, even at this time, they weren't as big a market. So they weren't necessarily as important at the time for the worldwide industry, but they were very important for how things would play out in Europe. So still worth mentioning. In the United Kingdom, there was a big Space Invaders boom. They didn't have the Pac-Man boom. Their industry kind of fell apart in 1981, whereas industries everywhere else kind of fell apart in 1982. But after the Space Invaders boom, there was a lot of cloning, there was a lot of counterfeiting, there was a lot of stuff coming out of Italy, in addition to stuff coming out of the Far East. There was a big move to copy Defender in early 1981, which Williams reacted very violently against, and there was no legal precedent But a bunch of Defender copies showed up at the ATE show that year in early 1981. Williams started chasing them down very, very religiously. Especially after that Starcastle case, that Cinematronics VK Noma case came down. Even though there was no precedent there, even though it was an unpublished opinion, it showed the courts were likely to side with the manufacturers in these cases. So even though there wasn't a precedent yet, it made Williams feel that they could go very aggressively after infringers in Britain, even without a precedential law, because it looked like courts were going to rule in their favor. So Williams was the first one to become very aggressive at going after counterfeiters, even though they didn't have any legal judgment. Atari also started to do the same by the end of 1981, again, without any legal precedent. But Atari had not been a player, really, in the Japanese and American cases because they didn't deal in Japanese product. They weren't importing much Japanese product in the United States, and that's where the major problem was. But in Europe, there was a problem with American product being copied as well. 
Hence, Williams having to go after Defender people, Atari having to go after Centipede and Asteroids people, but neither of them actually brought court cases. They just figured that with their clout, they could probably throw their weight around, do what needed to be done, and if somebody did end up taking them to court, they felt they had a good chance to win because it seemed like sentiment was starting to turn towards manufacturers in cases like the the K-Noma Cinematronics case. The company that did finally bring suit was Sega. Just as in Japan, they were pursuing Frogger infringers very vigorously, they also moved in Europe to go after infringers of Frogger and other games like Zaxxon very, very religiously and rigorously. Because after all, that's the whole reason that Konami gave them Frogger in the first place, is that they wanted somebody that could deal with the counterfeiters. So they took a company called Competitive Video to court. The case was heard in July 1982, and they took, once again, the literary work tract. So they didn't go the audiovisual route. They went the literary work track. They decided that the assembly code program of the game was, in fact, copyrightable. So we have Japan and Britain going the literary work route, and we have the United States going the audiovisual route, but they're all three coming to the same result, that video games are copyrightable. Finally, I mean, I'm sure there were cases heard in other European markets as well, but the last one that I want to, again, very briefly mention is France. In France, it was actually Atari that brought suit. They were pursuing infringers of Centipede, Asteroids, Missile Command in the UK, but they didn't actually bring a lawsuit there. But in France, they did. They took two manufacturers to court, Sidham and Validon were their names, that were counterfeiting Atari games. The companies in question argued that these were works of engineering, that they weren't artistic works, that they didn't really display any original elements, because things like moving targets, obstacles, etc., were found in the vast majority of video games, and these were really not unique artistic elements. They were just commonly used engineering elements. So a little bit of a different track than some of our others have been using, but still kind of the same idea that you just can't copyright this stuff. The court had the games demonstrated side by side, and they also went the audio-visual route. I think the infringers were trying to argue more based on, you know, this is code, this is not unique, whatever, and we're trying to ignore the audiovisual element, and we're hoping that the court would be unfamiliar with video games and not see the audiovisual differences. They were focusing on programming, like movement, collision detection, dots on the screen. These are all things that are programmed in every game, so it's not unique, and we're hoping that they wouldn't look at the audiovisual. But the court ruled that audiovisually, these were very clearly cinemagraphic works, therefore subject to copyright. So in the four jurisdictions we've looked at, we have a two-to-two split. Two courts, Japan and Britain, two countries, decided that they were literary works. Two countries, the United States and France, decided that they were audiovisual works. It just shows kind of the difficulty in figuring out where exactly a new medium, a new form of expression fits, especially one as complex as video games, where you have so many different elements from chips on a board to computer code to images on a monitor to narrative and everything else. Do they still view them in the same way in these respective countries, or has that changed and evolved over time? 
That's a good question. I don't really know about the foreign countries, foreign to me. The United States did finally update copyright law to recognize software as something that was copyrightable. So you did not any longer have to do this song and dance where you tried to fit it into other existing categories. I don't know if those other countries have done the same, but it wouldn't surprise me. Now that software itself is an established idea and people know what that is, it's far easier to treat it as its own thing than trying to to force-feed it into other areas. These days, the idea that a video game is copyrightable is incredibly settled. No one is ever going to make an argument anymore that you can't copyright a video game. Subsequent litigation in this area, which we're not covering in this episode, though some of it we did cover in our uh, video game lawsuits episode, subsequent cases focused on how much similarity needed to be present before something infringed. But they would never again be a question that you could infringe. That's really what this is more been focused on is that. Yes. Can you even copyright any of this stuff? And if so, what is it? Exactly. This episode shows how four different jurisdictions went about it and uh, just shows kind of the challenges broadly applicable whenever something new comes along in figuring out how it fits into a legal landscape that is based on already existing precedent. All you're telling me is that in 20 years when we do They Create Worlds, the AI copyright wars, (laughs) we can reference this episode as, hey, this is history just repeating itself. Looking forward to it. Since I can't fast forward 20 years to see how that episode plays out, we're just going to have to go the long way and figure out how to fill in the gaps. The beast must be fed, Jeffrey. Oh, dear God, must it ever. We're going to go back to the ancient times again, to the long, long ago, the before times, before there was a computer game industry of any kind. It's always fun to look back at that. One game that has gotten a lot of attention in recent days is the Sumerian game, which was later repurposed as the game Hammurabi. This very famous text-based game, educational game around building a civilization by managing the buying and selling of grain and the feeding of people was one of the staples on early mainframe networks, one of the staples of early hobbyist computing, and versions of it continue to exist on the internet to this day. It's a fascinating story. It's one of the first places where computer games and education intersected. It was one of the very first, probably the very first game, designed in large part by a woman. The way it managed to spread in a period of time before widespread computer networks and software sharing is an interesting story in and of itself as well. So there's a lot of material to cover around the Sumerian game, and it is good fodder for an episode of They Create Worlds. Well, I guess we will have to beg to report on the Sumerian game next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. You can also help by getting the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. 
used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Now that you have reached the end, I have to inform you about a cease and desist. You can never cease and desist from listening to They Create Worlds. <laughs>